Warrior Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Can, author of the number one bestseller, Guide to Healing Chronic Pain, A Holistic Approach. And if you are a highly sensitive person, you're in the right place because I have a special gift for you. You can check out the Sensitive Soul Empowerment Guide at sensitivesoulguide, all one word, dot com. Sensitivesoulguide.com. It's a free download for you. And every week we bring you all sorts of different experts in different arenas, and some are what I call uh, spiritual entrepreneurs, uh, others natural healing. And today I'm super excited because Dr. Chris Kenobi is going to be with us talking about how we can heal from things that us doctors, Doctors, medical doctors, me, as when I was in medical school, we were told are not treatable. How cool is that? So I'm all about natural healing and what we can do without necessarily resorting to drugs or surgery, and in some cases those things don't even work. Today, one of the focus of our topics is about age-related macular degeneration. And I remember back in medical school, I had uh, eye issues myself. I've had retinal tears, and I've got a sclerobuckle. Most people don't even know what that is. You know, you know. I feel like I'm like part bionic. Anyway, so um, and and I I empathize with people with uh, eye issues. And when medical school, we were kind of told, eh, there's not much you can do about it. Maybe you know, throw some vitamins at it or something like that. But there wasn't a lot that we were taught to do about acute macular degeneration, uh, age-related macular degeneration, we were just kind of told, like, well, this is kind of bad, and, you know, you just tell the patient and refer them to the ophthalmologist, and, and that's about it. But lo and behold, there's actually now data and research relating to how people can naturally heal from chronic illness, not just, you know, uh, AMD, but other things as well. And so I was super excited to hear this. I actually thought, uh, I actually found... Uh, Chris online, I can't remember if it was Facebook or something like that, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I really want him on my show, <laughs> because people have asked me, you know, in the past, like, how do I naturally heal from something like this, and I was like, I don't know, you know, I mean, I know energy work, but uh, that's about it, like, I don't have any data backing up, like, what I do is going to make a huge difference, and now here's someone that does have the data, so if you reside in the United States, and you survive to age 75 or beyond, you actually have According to statistics, a one in three chance of developing age-related macular degeneration, also known as AMD, and that can rob you of your central vision. And around 10 to 15 percent of all people affected lose that central vision at least one eye, with varying degrees of vision loss in the other eye as well. And about one and a half percent end up blind in both eyes. Um, but we're super excited because we have Dr. Chris Kenobi today, an ophthalmologist, to share his revolutionary hypothesis and supportive research, uh, which um, really, you know, uh, it, it goes against what we learned in medical school, like you can't, that we can't treat this. Yes, we can. So it's not just about aging or genetics, as we've been taught or traditionally have believed. Um, now we have data that there's something you can do about it. So I'm super excited to interview uh, Dr. Kenobi today. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Karen. It's really a pleasure to, to be on your show. Thank you. Oh, this is so exciting. And, you know, uh, your book, Ancestral Dietary Strategy to Prevent and Treat Macular Degeneration, uh, you have that out. I, I I think it's so exciting that, you know, an actual MD <laughs> – is doing, right. you know, research on this area. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about you. Like, how did you get to this 
point in, in focusing on AMD and, and um, helping people heal from the inside out? Yeah, so um, the, re the reason I'm here and the reason I got here is because of my own suffering. And um, um, Karen, it started when I was about 34, 35 years old, like, you know, just shortly after I got out of ophthalmology residency, and I started developing arthritis. And that really it just kind of gradually progressed until, you know, by the time I was about 50 years old, which was 2011, um, I was just absolutely miserable with so many joints affected. And um, what happened was, is kind of a long story short, is I, I learned about the paleo diet, and, I, and actually I just cut out, um, uh, initially I just cut out grains and dairy, and like within about 8 or 10 days I was about 80% better. Wow. And after after yeah after suffering for like 16 years with arthritis and getting to the point where I just was you know I, I was so miserable that this was the most dramatic thing to me Karen that you could possibly imagine and it changed the whole course of my life and um, so you know and 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 the thing was is you know I'd seen all my physicians. I mean, probably about 10 or 12 of my physician friends over the years for my, my own arthritis and, you know, from family docs, internists, orthopedic surgeons, even rheumatologists, and nobody ever said a word about my diet for this. You know, it was always drugs and you know, I got injections in my knees and all that. And, um, you know, it didn't, it really just, none of it did very much good. And, but anyway, so this changed my life so much. I just wanted to learn everything I could about nutrition. And that's what I started doing, which again was, that was early 2011. And then in 2013, I eventually came across the work of Weston A. Price. And I'm sure you're, you know, I'll just make this really quick, but yeah. let me just give a quick overview here. So, so in, in 2013, I noticed that all the people that were really making sense to me about diet um, like uh, Chris Kresser, Stephen Guyane, Chris Masterjohn, um, Sally Fallon, all of these people were fundamentally uh, based in the work of Weston Price. And Weston Price was this just fantastically brilliant uh, nutrition researcher that in the 1930s essentially uh, uh, traveled the world evaluating people on five different continents and thousands and thousands of people in hundreds of tribes and villages and what he was assessing was is uh, people on native traditional diets versus more westernized diets or really he kind of evaluated a lot of them as they had transitioned to westernized diets and 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 westernization means different things to different people but what it meant to price and what it means to me is is it's really about four things sugar refined white flour vegetable oils and trans fats that's basically it now price would have included like canned goods essentially but anyway what he what he found was that as people transitioned to this more westernized diet what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce that they began to develop um degenerative what he called degenerative diseases and these were the first thing was they developed dental decay um, and the children developed 
crooked, you know, malocluded teeth. And then the adults, the de- adults even developed dental decay and abscesses, and they developed arthritis and cancer. And then essentially what I always say, just in a very, you know, nutshell kind of way, is that um, thousands of research papers since have connected those foods, those processed foods, to diseases of civilization, heart disease, cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes, obesity, all that. So this is what I understood, Karen, in 2013. So late 2013, after I just had reviewed Price's book in detail, and I was just completely blown away. And for the first time ever, I had this framework that made sense to me about nutrition. And, and to, to this day, the more and more I'm always going back to prices research because it's it guides me in everything I do. It's this framework that now I, I everything makes sense essentially. And so the, anyway, to get back to to get to macular degeneration was once I understood that all of you know that processed foods drive all of this chronic disease, I questioned whether or not age-related macular degeneration might also be driven by right. processed food consumption. And and to tell you the truth, I mean, I had no idea. This was late 2013. And so I began to study that, you know, study that and um and one of the first things I had to do was I had to, you know, research the history of macular degeneration and uh, because I knew that if there was a connection, I had to I had, you know, that at one point when we didn't have processed foods, essentially, that macular degeneration had to be rare. But anyway, so by early 2015, I was so convinced that I was on the right track and that, you know, that macular degeneration, which is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 65 and maybe even people over the age of 50 worldwide, I knew this was so important that I um, left practice to pursue this full time in February of 2015, and I've never looked back. And and um, but wow. anyway, so yeah. That's so then amazing. we studied. Lucky us. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I it's it's um, I love what I do, and I think you know we're reaching more and more people. I think we you know, but anyway, we hope to reach you know hundreds of millions around the world eventually. But anyway, I hope I answered your question in a in a brief enough way, you know, that that's how I Oh no, that's perfect. Here. I love hearing the stories of how people get to where they are because a lot of times some of us have to go through our own what we call in the spiritual world the dark night of the soul. Meaning that we have yeah. to suffer to some degree to really be inspired or motivated to kind of like do our life's mission or do our life's work. Myself included, I had fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, which is, you know, then I wrote the book, right? <laughs> Guide to Healing Really? Pain. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, yeah, I, um, autoimmune, all sorts of things. And of course, you know, diet was a big part of it. In fact, Sally Fallon actually did a review of my book in the Western um, you know, their, their, uh, their journal, you know, for the Weston A. Price uh, mm-hmm. journal. So luckily for me, I got a thumbs up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, uh, yeah, diet, diet is such a huge part. And, you, and unfortunately, like you're an MD, I'm an MD. I don't know about you, but I fell asleep in nutrition class. I didn't like the, <laughs> the 
because the biochemistry teacher was also the nutrition teacher, and mm-hmm. it was so boring. Um, and, and, and nothing they taught me was practical. Like it wasn't like I. I mean, I was in second year medical school. I wanted to know about diseases. You know, like what's yeah. this do? What's that do? And then we learned about these drugs and these surgery is so exciting and. You know, and but it was like, yeah, here's nutrition, and this is the Krebs cycle, and I'm like, you know, like I was right. not. Had they presented anything like Weston A. Price, like the before and after pictures, like before when they were on traditional diets and after one generation yeah. when they are not, right. I it, it would have shocked me out of my seat. I would have been awake, you know. And, and pay attention. Right. But I, I didn't get much training at all, unfortunately. I don't actually recall that we had any nutrition education in medical school. I went to the University of Colorado School of Medicine in, here in Denver, and I don't recall that we had any nutrition education at all. Now, I don't consider biochemistry, which was, you know, that was a big course, but to me, that didn't, it, you know, it it just doesn't. It didn't it's help with nutrition. understanding nutrition because there was, there were no ties to, you know, to where food was connected to what's going on with our body. Essentially, mm-hmm. I felt like it was more, mm-hmm. you know, just the just the task of memorizing all those all the metabolic cycles, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Which it was hilarious that the biochem teacher was given the task of teaching us nutrition. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, not, that makes sense not an for a medical school, but. Right. Yeah, it, it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, some people listening in might go, well, gee, how, like, how do I know if I might be developing macular degeneration? Like, what are the signs? What are the symptoms of that? And, you know, as an ophthalmologist, maybe you can share with us, like, the development of that in your experience prior to, you know, knowing about traditional diets and then now what you found in some of your research. Okay, yeah, sure. So the um the thing is is with macular degeneration, you really could not as a patient depend on your symptoms, signs or symptoms in order to decide whether or not you ought to be seen by an ophthalmologist or optometrist uh to evaluate you for macular degeneration because if you're if you've lost if you're losing significant vision, then, well, that's just a bad sign. So my point is, is that people really need to have, you know, at least every few years after the age of, you know, maybe 40 or 45, they really need to start having some exams um, to evaluate this. Because, you know, in the early stages of macular degeneration, people don't have any symptoms at all. Now, if they were tested, they would probably have some night vision. They would have some... uh, delayed dark adaptation but they really wouldn't have you know really wouldn't have a lot of symptoms and so you really need to be assessed for it uh, in order to determine if you have it but um but anyway yeah well, so, unless someone so, wears glasses they might not even ever get checked really theoretically oh, absolutely Correct? that's the thing so if you went into um an optometrist's office, for example, you went into a glasses place and you said, hey, you know, I've got blurry vision and I just need some glasses. Well, you know, you could, a lot of those people could actually just have an exam and get, you know, get their, get a glasses prescription and they wouldn't, there's no, you know, nobody would even look at their macula because you have to, you either have to use devices or you have to dilate or, 
you know, there's various ways of getting about it, but there's it's very, very likely that a whole lot of people could get glasses and never have an exam of their macula and have no clue at all. So if they waited until they're having vision deterioration and they go in, and well, shoot, a lot of those people could have moderately severe macular degeneration at that point. Ooh, and of yeah. course, you know, with you know, with orthodox allopathic ophthalmology, it wouldn't really it wouldn't really matter because they're not going to tell them anything that's really helpful about how to manage it. Um, you know, they're because they don't believe that diet plays a role. They the belief system has been, you know, for many decades, I'm going to say for at least, you know, six decades, that the belief system has been that macular degeneration is driven primarily by aging and genetics. And that that drives, you know, probably somewhere in the range of 80 to 90% of this disease and the rest is quote unquote environment. And so there's a very little concern amongst allopathic medicine slash ophthalmology that that diet has anything to do with macular degeneration and what I can tell you is is that um, you know from my research uh, our research I should say that that it has everything to do with macular degeneration in fact if I if I jump to the end I would just say that that I don't believe macular degeneration will occur in anyone on an ancestral diet, that is a diet that doesn't include, um, you know, refined white flour, sugars, vegetable oils, and trans fats. If you don't have those in your diet, I think it's almost impossible to develop this this disease. I'm not saying it's entirely impossible, because we do know that, you know, even there's ways to make diets really bad, even when you have, um, an, you know, ancestral foods available. If you consume a really monotonous type of diet. But I'll give you a few examples here. So like in, in my research, um, if you want, do you want me to keep talking about macular yeah, degeneration? Yes, that's really interesting. Okay, so, so I'll give you a few examples. And here's one I think is just incredibly powerful uh, in, terms of, in terms of shining the light on the fact that, that macular degeneration is about diet. So so there was a study done. Let me talk about some about um, three different populations of West Africans. Okay, so we have there was a study done by uh, looking at the Africans of southwestern rural Nigeria, and this was a population that had a macular degeneration prevalence for people over the age of 41. They were eight to 92 years of age, but the peak was like. 41 to 70 years of age. But anyway, their macular degeneration prevalence was 0.1%. In other words, that's one out of 1,000 people in that age wow. range. Okay, now 240 miles away in Onicha, Nigeria, which is a metropolitan population with 1.1 1, 1 .1 million people at the time this study was done. I think, I can't remember when this was. I think it was 2007. But anyway, their macular degeneration prevalence was 3.2% for people wow. 50 and older. Okay, so that's already 32-fold higher. So now what's the difference? Well, the Africans of southwestern rural Nigeria, what I confirmed is that they didn't have any access to processed foods. They couldn't get them. They were living off of a native traditional diet 
uh, and they had no access to grocery stores. They had no access to any such restaurants. I mean, they're consuming a native traditional diet. In Onitsha, Nigeria, the metropolitan population where the macular degeneration prevalence was, is still really low, 3.2%, they have grocery stores, they have restaurants, and they're getting um, processed foods and vegetable oils. Okay? But that's already a 32-fold difference. Now, let's jump across the Atlantic Ocean and go down to Barbados, which I always call, you know, it's, in, you know, it's, it's, it's really in the Atlantic, but I always think of it as in the Caribbean. And, but anyway, so this is in Barbados. People of Barbados are of West African heritage because they were all brought there, you know, through the slave trade. So this population, there was a study done in 1990, uh, I think it was around 1990 to 92, I believe. But anyway, it, this population was 97% West African. All right. Age group is 40 to 83 years. And their macular degeneration prevalence was 24.3 percent. Wow! Okay, two, Holy 200 and, yeah, 243 times greater than the Africans of southwestern rural Nigeria. Now these people are all of the same genetics. They're the same age. They're just in different areas. Now what's what's going on in Barbados? Well. The researchers, if you look at all this research about Barbados, you find out that in Barbados, people have the, one of the highest processed food consumptions in the world. I mean, it is a mecca oh, for really? processed food consumption, and the researchers say this is a mecca for metabolic disease. So they have you know, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, obesity. And why is this? And the reason is is because they're importing almost all of their food. They don't, they don't grow anything, uh, raise anything locally. And they're getting a lot of food from the United States. And this food, of course, is junk, and it's full of um, you know, sugars, re refined flours, vegetable oils, and trans fats. So, I mean, this is... So we've seen three populations of West Africans and uh, up to a 243-fold difference in their macular degeneration prevalence based wow. on nothing other than diet. Okay, so now let's look at Japan. So Japan's a great example um, also because they've westernized their diet since about the 1960s particularly, well, a little bit earlier than that. But, but anyway, so in the late... In the late 1970s, between 1974 and 1979, there was a study that looked at macular degeneration prevalence, um, and their prevalence was 0.2%. Uh, and now, okay, now advanced 30 years later, and the macular degeneration prevalence was 11.4%. Now, let me tell you what happened during that period. So if you looked at, so when we looked at all the data, the vegetable oil, let me back up and just say sugar changed a bit. Like it almost doubled. I think it went up like 1.7 fold during this period from about 1960 to 2007. Okay, so that was part of the issue. But here's the huge issue. The polyunsaturated vegetable oils, in 1960, they were at 9 grams a day. By 2007, 40 grams a day. That's a four and a half fold increase. 40 grams a day of vegetable oils is huge. Now, it's not nearly as bad as us, but 
you have to, have to realize that, you know, I mean, in the 1930s and 1940s, I mean, the Japanese would have not consumed any vegetable oils, essentially. And so, anyway, so I'm gonna, let me go back to those numbers. So the macular degeneration, 0.2% to 11.4%, that's a 57-fold increase in the prevalence of macular degeneration in 30 years. Now, you can't possibly ascribe that to genetics or aging, right? It doesn't right. make – I mean, so, you know, orthodox ophthalmology, they look at this. They have no answers. But here's the answer right here. Okay, let me look at – let me tell you about another population that's along these lines, New Zealand. So New Zealand, in 1969, they had a macular degeneration prevalence study for people over the age of 50 – and it was 1.3% um, was their macular degeneration prevalence. All right, 2014, for approximately the same category, people aged 45 to 85, it was 10.3%. So that's an eight-fold increase. Um, well, here's what happened to their vegetable oils. In 1960, it was somewhere between zero and one gram per day, per average, is what I'm always talking about here. For the people, by 1991 and, and forward, it was 20 grams a day. So it was roughly a 20-fold increase in their vegetable oil consumption um, during that period. And um, uh, so, again, you know, w when you look at all these, as you know, Karen, when you look, they, people look at these studies of, of um, let's say heart disease, and they go, well, this, you know, this population had a 20% relative increase in their heart disease, and this is a big deal, right? Well, here we're talking about differences of thousands of percent um, in these kinds of populations. You know, like a 57-fold. Yeah, yeah, like a 57-fold increase in Japan in 30 years. That's 5,600% increase is what that is. Um, you know, in wow. in uh, the the Africans of you know Barbados, their increase twenty four thousand two hundred percent greater. You know, the numbers are so big it doesn't. You know, an ophthalmologist colleague <laughs> of mine that's helping me, he says, don't even don't even list that, don't even say that. You know, it's so big that it's just it's like so it's shocking. so staggering. It's kind of like saying trillions of dollars people don't even understand you know it's so big you can't right. even you're fathom like, what the heck, it, you know? what the heck is a trillion well, you're okay, right so right here's the thing. yeah we 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 learned in medical school you know in terms of like uh these kinds of you know the research and everything like that that it, sometimes it's difficult to say that something caused it saying vegetable oils say cause amd because it's a right. correlation study it's a retrospective retrospective study it's not a double blind blah 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 right and there are other factors involved like maybe there's a lot of electromagnetic radiation now there wasn't then or you know maybe more chemicals or glyphosate although that's the last 10 years only you know in our food like so um how do you we figure all that out like how can we there's a correlation but we can't say that it's a causation yeah so well i think the you know part of that we have to go back to this is where you know i had to understand what's happening with us metabolically what's happening what's happening with our general health 
and you know and we can get you know we can get very focused as to what's happening at the microscopic level and i'm i'm i you know we'll, i'm happy to do that but what i have to understand is is you know we can't look at macular degeneration in isolation for me to understand macular degeneration first i had to understand that that you know the history of all these diseases and i could you know briefly review that but in a nutshell what we know is, is, and if you want me to hit this, you know, if you want me to hit highlights or if you want me to give you some more detail, I can. But what we know is that heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, um, obesity, macular degeneration, metabolic syndrome, myopia, all of these disorders, autoimmune diseases, they've all, um, fought, they've all increased in prevalence in lockstep with our change in diet. So you can just track all of these diseases as they progress from, in the 19th century, these were all extraordinarily rare. And, uh, and you know, today, they're all extraordinarily prevalent. Um, so now if you want to get down some, if you want to get down to the, you know, the, the microscopic, you know, kind of, you know, down the molecular level, I can go down, I, you know, I can go that way too. Well, just tell yeah, me let, where let, you want me to go that. with this. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to share, uh, just for folks listening live on the show today, that uh, we have somebody with their hand up, so we'll be unmuting you shortly. But uh, the guest call-in number, if you'd like to ask uh, Chris a question, Dr. Kenobi a question, the, the number is 818-514-1190, hit 1, so we know your hand's up. Again, 818-514-1190 and hit 1. And we'll be uh, taking questions in a little bit. Um, yeah, so uh, definitely on the microscopic level on, on that, you know, uh, you know, people are trying to connect, like, vegetable oils. Like, what's so bad about vegetable oils? It's just oil for vegetables, isn't it? Now, you and I know it isn't, but right, right. <laughs> let's go down that path a little bit. Okay, sure. So here, So here's the thing is up until – um, up until the American Civil War, the, the entire world essentially did not have any vegetable oils. Now, there was a few art, you know, artisanal kinds of oils, like um, some populations, really tiny populations, had some, some coconut oil, some peanut oil, and some sesame oil, I think was the, the three. And they were, you know, these were just pressed oils. They would have been very healthy and still can be, but for the most part, like th almost the entire world had no access to oils whatsoever. And so oils were introduced to the United States with cottonseed oil right after the American Civil War. And um, th so the oils then, okay, what, what you know, what, the uh, manufacturers determined was that they could produce all kinds of oils again like you know so it started with cottonseed but and then one of the next ones was soybean and they determined that well they could press you know all these other things so you know corn so it's soybean corn cottonseed canola rapeseed grapeseed sunflower safflower and rice bran these are the major ones and these are all the highly polyunsaturated oils and what and the reason for all this was that they they knew that they that um, 
they could produce these oils really inexpensively, and they could replace and supplant the animal fats, lard, butter, and beef tallow. And so this is what happened. So they began, so, so they began to substitute these oils in place of the healthy lard, butter, and beef tallow. And what happened, you know, for example, in the United States is, is that, you know, we went from zero in terms of vegetable oils to, in, in 1865, to um, a consumption of 80 grams per person per day by 2010. Now, let me give you a number here because 80 wow. grams of vegetable oil per day, and this is all published research. I won't tell you anything that, that hasn't already been published or we haven't published. 80 grams a day, just do the math. That's nine calories per gram. That's 720 calories a day. It works out to be 32.5% of your uh, consumption, 32.5% of your caloric Holy consumption. Bully. Yeah, so it's roughly a third of what Americans are consuming is, is vegetable oils. Now, here's the thing. So there's two huge issues with vegetable oils. One is, is that they're nutrient deficient. So if you take butter, which is just fan, you know, pasture-raised butter, which is fantastically healthy, um, it you know, has a lot of monounsaturated saturated fat and a small amount of polyunsaturated fat, um, and it has vitamins A, D, and K2, this is a nutrient-sufficient food and extremely healthy. Um, you know, the vegetable oils, chock full of o- omega-6, um, which, um, well, we'll go down this path, but they're extraordinarily dangerous for many reasons. And um, if we just look at the, um, the omega-6 consumption alone, what would have happened was we would have went from zero in, 19, in 1865 to, on average, about 18 grams a day by 1999. Now, there's some other research that would suggest that, that by the early 2000s, we were at 29.3 grams a day. That's, you know, Stefan Guillenet's research shows that. So, but anyway, we're roughly like 18 to almost 30 grams a day just of omega-6. So omega-6 is now... Are going to um, they're going to drive inflammation. They're going to drive toxicity, and they're going to um, they're going to accumulate in our cells, in our cell membranes, and in our fat. And what happens is is that because they're polyunsaturated, they are very prone to oxidation. So lipid chemists would call this peroxidation because these are lipids. And so what happens right. is, is as you fill up your cellular membranes with, with these types of fats, and that's what happens, they accumulate in our fat, that you begin what I call a catastrophic lipid peroxidation cascade. And what this means is that, um, you know, polyunsaturated fats are just like, I think of these as like having little bits of paper all around your house and you've got a welder going with sparks flying everywhere. And you're just going to start fires everywhere. And what happens is, is that, now I'm going to get kind of molecular here just for a second, but, but we were never meant to burn, let me just use linoleic acid, which is the primary omega-6 from seed oils. 
We were, ne- we were not meant to burn linoleic acid for fuel. We were meant to store it in our membranes because we were supposed to get these in tiny, tiny amounts. And, these, and linoleic acid is incredibly important. In fact, it's one of the essential fats, right? Lino- so linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic alpha acid, that, which is omega-6 and omega-3 respectively, we have to have those in tiny amounts, but we only need about 2% linoleic acid and probably about 1% alpha-linolenic acid, again, the omega-6 and omega-3. Anyway, so what happens is, you know, these are supposed to accumulate in very specific places. And let me just give you one of those places where it's critically important is in our mitochondrial cell membranes. So in the cristae, where electron transport takes place, for example, linoleic acid, again, the omega-6 linoleic acid, accumulates there and it and it forms an integral part of a molecule called, called cardiolipin. And cardiolipin is a critical component of of the electron transport chain because it creates a scaffold upon which electron transport can take place. I'm going to make sense of this in just a second. But what happens is is that that linoleic if you eat a high PUFA diet, a high seed oil diet, that linoleic acid in this cardiolipin will oxidize because it's just like you have this, this peroxidation cascade going, and it'll oxidize that lino, linoleic acid. L, I should maybe just call it LA, the omega-6 LA, and that will change the, the three-dimensional structure of it. And what happens is, is, is at that level, um, that creates pores in the electron transport, uh, in the membranes that, that are critical to the function of electron transport, and that, that membrane then can no longer hold a, a hydrogen proton gradient. And the hydrogen protons, when they, when the, 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 the way the mitochondria work is they create a hydrogen proton gradient, and they use that gradient um, to move the protons through that membrane, and as they come through the membrane, there's an ATP synthase, and that's how we create ATP. It takes ADP and phosphorylates it to ATP, and that's our energy currency, right? And so, but what happens is, is now there's, now because the linoleic acid is oxidized and it's three-dimensionally changed, the membrane can't hold the proton gradient, and you have these protons slipping through the membrane and you're losing power. And so here's what happens. So, wow. so let me say this. So we lose mitochondrial function. And the, you know, when you, two things happen right away is, is you lose power. You can't create power. Um, and reactive oxygen species start throwing out of that, of the mitochondria. And so let me tell you this. So here, so, Here's the thing is if you start looking, again, we're getting really, you know, focused granular here, if you want to call it that, is, but if you look at what's going on molecularly, here, here's what unifies all these diseases. So ischemic heart disease, heart failure, cancer, obesity, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver, fatty liver disease, macular degeneration, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, hypothyroidism, the list goes on, Okay. All of these diseases have one thing in common, and it's mitochondrial dysfunction. Why would that be? And the reason it is, 
is because these polyunsaturated oils that we're consuming to great excess, they accumulate in our cell membranes, light them on fire. In other words, they just start oxidizing in a catastrophic cascade, and they destroy cardiolipin and mitochondria fail. And then if you look at the microscopic structure of our mitochondria in all those diseases I just mentioned, they are all pathologic. Like you can see the, the cristae in the mitochondria are disrupted. They change shape. The, the mitochondria get smaller or they get larger and they balloon out of shape and all sorts wow. of pathologic things you see in all of these diseases. You know, that's not coming that's from amazing. sugar. It's coming from vegetable oils. And so now let me, I want to mention one other thing that gets, you know, that at your question. So, you know, why is this so bad? Well, so here's one more thing. So these lipid, these lipids, when you consume these omega-6s, like I said, they're meant to be, we need a very tiny amount. But when you get them in significant amounts, the first thing that happens is, is they peroxidize. And that first peroxidation product is called a lipid hydroperoxide. And these lipid hydroperoxides are not in themselves dangerous, but they degenerate immediately into all of these toxic products like 4-hydroxynonanol, which is HNE, malondialdehyde or MDA, acrolein, carboxyethylpyrrole, and the uh, HODES, um, which HODES is um, hydroxy octadecadienoic acid. I'll never say that again in my life. Wow. Um, but that's what. Okay. So these. <laughs> well <there>. so, <laughs> so these. All right. So these products right here, and I've never gotten a chance to talk about these in, in any detail, but you can take these four, five, you know, products, and there's a bunch more, but these are degenerative products that are called aldehydes. And these aldehydes, um, they are in much, much greater concentration in these um, polyunsaturated oils, especially when you heat them. So if you, you cook them, then the levels of these toxic aldehydes, these, again, the HNE, the MDA, the acrolein, carboxyethylpyrrole, the HODES, all of those, they accumulate up to around four, five, six-fold greater than they would if you heat butter and coconut oil. All right, and so, so all of these are co collectively they're associated with all of these disorders, and I can talk about each one a little bit if you want me to. But let me just say this: collectively, these aldehydes, these products I'm mentioning, they are collectively cytotoxic, meaning they poison cells and kill cells directly. They're genotoxic, which means that they can damage damage gen genetic material, DNA. They're mutagenic. They cause mutations in DNA. They're carcinogenic. Everybody knows that means they cause cancer. They're atherogenic. They're producing atherosclerosis of and by themselves. And they're thrombogenic, meaning they're producing clots. So you take all this together, just these, these you know, five ingredients coming from the breakdown products of these PUFA oils can account for almost all of our diseases of civilization.
Wow, that is isn't that incredible? That is crazy. I mean, oh my gosh. Well, I just totally geeked out with you here, Chris, and it was yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I, loved it. I, know, I don't know if totally. us, but totally geeked out. Yeah, that's, that's so great. Well, you know, I'm sure uh, we're gonna get to some questions, but one of the things that people want to know is like, hey, you know, like um, you know, maybe they're dairy sensitive for whatever reason. They can't do butter. Um. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe they don't like the taste of tallow. You know, they're asking, well, what about, you know, uh, avocado oil? What about olive oil? Like, should you cook with it, not cook with it? Like, the smoke point, depending on who you ask, is it high, is it low? Is that relevant to whether this is safe? So, yeah, so maybe you can give us some practical advice on, on, on those kinds of things if we do choose to do something that is not a solid fat at room temperature. Okay, so let me ask you a question before I try to answer that. So, so Karen, are there people that cannot consume ghee, for example, that they just yeah, it there just might doesn't be a work? Few. Yeah, mm-hmm. there might be a few. I'm a big fan of ghee, but uh, yeah. um, there are times where my body says too damp, and so I'm like, okay. So then, okay. then you know, in in that fat, I in in that way, I. Like, for example, in Chinese medicine, which, of course, isn't as ancient as some of these traditional diets we're talking about, but in traditional Chinese medicine, which is still thousands of years old, we never do dairy, or at least Chinese people didn't do dairy. Right, right. Um, now, yeah. she doesn't have lactose, so it's not just the lactose. It's something about the energy of it or the dampness of it or something. Um, and, yeah, so sometimes I'll have to, you know, stave off of any sort of oils at all, not not talking about, you know, eating one oil instead of another, but just not eating as many oils. But there there are a few people that, you know, aren't going to be able to tolerate um, ghee, and they're like, well, can't I do coconut oil? It's saturated fat, even though it's not animal fat. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, all these questions running around yeah. about what's alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the first thing I would say is, is that um, – you know, we have to be extremely cautious, I think, about getting our fat-soluble vitamins. This is the, you know, get back to the really big picture. I think this is so fantastically important. It goes back to Price's research that we've right. got to get good sources of vitamins A, D, and K2. And, this, you know, the, the, the uh, best sources of A, D, and K2 collectively would be um, the liver of animals, cod liver oil, good uh, pastured butter from cattle that are grazing on green grass. Um, fish are, are good sources of, of those. Um, um, and uh, what am I missing? That's about, that's about it. I mean, there's not like, a lot yeah, of... Yeah, like animal fat, like, you know, skin from the you know, chicken or, you know, that's... Yeah, that's so the... even the, that's the thing is, you know, the the... Now, lean uh, animal meats like muscle meat is really low in fat-soluble vitamins, but they are there. And even the fat of the animals is really low in fat-soluble vitamins, but they are there. So, you know, people can get enough, I think, to get by usually, but I don't think it's optimal. Um, so, So going back to the question of, so if people cannot tolerate butter or even ghee, can they use other oils like, uh, um, well, anyway, and the answer is yes. And here's what I would say is, is if, so the tropical oils, coconut, palm, 
and palm kernel. Those three right there, they're highly saturated. They don't require all this processing. They can, you know, they're pressed essentially. They can be very, very healthy oils. Same for avocado. Um, and then to a lesser degree, peanut oil and sesame oil can be very good oils because they can be pressed and they don't require all that the heat and what well, like the vegetable oils they require heat they're chemically alkalinized bleached and deodorized and they're just a disaster you know uh, metabolically oh, yeah. i mean they're just con- you're just consuming poison when you consume those so uh, here's what i say horrible is horrible when you say it that way <laughs> I know, but they are. They're just absolutely poison. Right, it's just right. the worst possible thing in our diet. And the and but but so I, yes, I always say the tropical oils, coconut palm, palm kernel, and then avocado. Those are those are essentially very. They can be very healthy, but people have to realize that they're not getting the fat soluble vitamins that way. And so, and if they can't consume butter, then I'd say try to get a source of liver, chicken liver, beef liver, or get. Um, a cod liver oil, and I recommend like an extra virgin cold extracted cod liver oil, and that'd be a great way to get those vitamins. Um, but you have to get those vitamins to be healthy. I'm sorry. Liver freeze dried liver capsules. Someone's asking, would that be okay? Would that give you the saturated fat or not? Yes. Yeah, so like um, our daughter, um, Kyla, she's 21. She will not eat liver and she won't take the extra virgin cod liver oil in, um, you know, in the liquid form because it tastes yucky. Yep. <laughs> right. So she well. won't. So, so what I have her taking and she takes it faithfully is she takes the extra virgin cod liver oil capsules. With, uh, you know, I, I like the Rosita brand because it's cold extracted. You can get it from Corganic.com. But anyway, so I like those. And then I also have her taking beef liver, desiccated beef liver capsules, and I get them both from Corganic. And I think it's you know not as healthy by you know it's certainly not like eating liver or even taking the 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 extra virgin cod liver oil directly. But I think it's the next best and. Kyla has really gotten healthy over the last couple of three years, you know, just consuming those and she does it faithfully. And one of the reasons is it makes, it keeps her face like, like super clear. Um, yeah. Um, she just doesn't have any breakouts. She just, and so I think that it's, that's one of the things that drives her to take that every day. So that really makes me, and <laughs> so she's fantastically healthier. Like she just looks, she just looks brilliantly healthy and I think it's because largely because of that, you know. Okay, that's great. So olive oil is is not a seed oil, uh, and and but it's not saturated. Uh, most you know most of it's not saturated fat, nor does it right. have those fat soluble vitamins you're talking about, A, D, K. Uh, so is that healthy in moderate moderation, or can you eat as much of it yeah. as you want? Yeah, I think olive oil um, and uh, we need to qualify that, but olive oil, I think, is absolutely fine. Um, it can, it, you just cannot hardly oxidize the monounsaturated fat, oleic acid, which is the primary component in olive oil. Um, so I would say yes. Again, olive oil would would be fine. I don't recommend cooking with olive oil because it can oxidize, and it oxidizes easier, of course, than the saturated fats, but. 
but it would be fantastically better than all of the um, the polyunsaturated uh, oils. And um, but again, one just has to keep in mind it does it does not have any fat soluble vitamins. And so you know, here I'm going to say just for for me personally, um, we just cook everything in grass fed butter. Everything. I just use grass fed butter for everything or ghee. But I don't seem to have a problem, you know, with butter. And, and I realize that some people can't. And the pe- I, I believe that a lot of the people that do have an issue with butter, that they could, they, a lot of them, I think, can do well with ghee because ghee has all of the proteins removed, right? So it, essentially. Right. So it's a very, very, very pure fat. And it's the proteins, casein, casomorphin. Um, I think that are primarily inducing the responses that you know people can get to dairy. So, mm-hmm. but yes, I yeah, think olive I oil love, is. I love ghee. Oh, <laughs> here's what I want to say about olive oil, Karen, is that um, if people don't know it, you 80% of the oils called olive oil in the United States are not pure olive oil. They're adulterated with these dirt cheap, disgusting uh, polyunsaturated, polyunsaturated oils. And this is well known. This is, uh, this is a huge problem. And it's not just in the United States. It's, it's uh, even Italy that's known for their, their really good olive oh, oil. No. Uh, there's a huge problem. And they're, it's a, I mean, they are livid. The, the, the olive oil producers because they're they know that in even in Italy because they know that what's coming out of Italy there's been a there's been a lot of fakes and and again the reason is is because these um, all these uh, the, the the bad oils the again which is soybean corn canola cottonseed grapeseed grapeseed sunflower safflower those are dirt cheap. In fact, I came across uh, evidence research here a couple of years ago that the average price um, from the factory for those oils, for these polyunsaturated edible seed oils, is a dollar per kilo. Okay, so a kilo, a, a kilo is 1,000 grams, of course. And 1,000 grams, do the math, that's 9 calories per gram. So that's 9,000 calories worth of food, if you want to call it that. I use the term food loosely, but 9,000 calories (laughs) worth of food for a buck. So they can take, so think about this, for a few cents, like just for a few cents, you've got hundreds of calories worth of this seed oil. And then for a couple more cents, you can throw in your dirt, you know, your sugar, you know, coming from corn syrup, and then for a couple more cents, you can throw in your um, your refined white wheat flour. It's all three junk, and that right there makes up hundreds of thousands of foods. And, and uh, mega, mega dollars of profit for yeah, just this huge industry. profit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. is it true? I'm dying to ask you this. Is it true that if you put like so-called organic extra virgin olive oil in the fridge, it should solidify whereas if it doesn't solidify, you're looking at a fake? Is that true? Um I do not know, Karen. I just don't know the answer to that. So you're 
I, I don't. Did you ever try it? I, some, I had read that somewhere. Yeah, I did. I, I bought like I had different olive oils. I actually had one mm-hmm. from uh, my uh, my aunt. I think went to Italy and brought this big huge thing back, and my parents didn't want it, so they gave it to me. And so we were using it for a while. And and I had another. Or, I won't say the brand, but I had you know one I bought from the health food store, organic, popular, you know. And I thought, huh, let me try this. And what was really interesting was the olive oil from Italy. Um, solidified in the fridge, but the organic one from the U.S. did not. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know, that they were both labeled similarly. Yeah. Yeah, so, I don't really, um... I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> okay. Well. I, I know this. I know <laughs> that if you, that you know, if you, th- there's, um, oh, I wish I could, I can't think of the name. There's an organization that essentially tries to, uh, qualify the um, the olive oils. Oh, which ones yeah. are authentic in the United States? And I I'm, forgot which oh, one. Oh, I'm blanking on the yeah. name of that. But but they they say that they're testing them once or twice a year. Um, okay. I don't know. I'm great. Just, That's a great reason. I am so uh, I am so concerned. You don't about use it, right? I'm afraid to use all. I, yeah. The thing is, number one is is yeah, olive oil, true olive oil is expensive. And yeah. um and I think, you know, I've to, I have a good friend who's a physician that developed uh, macular degeneration and she's done really well on this diet for 3 years, has stable macular degeneration. But anyway, and she's down in Texas and and what she decided to do, which I think is a great idea, is she's she's going to the the company that makes the olive oil and she's going to watch the process and and uh, I think that's one of the best ways to know. But I mean, that's I, true. yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, it really makes me extremely cautious about any olive oil because of the fact that we know four out of five of them are adulterated. And that's just, that's just tragic. But this has been going on. This, this began in 1880. The, the, oh. um, yeah, the span, uh, it was, I'm trying to remember which country in um, in Europe. I think it was France. They made complaint to the United States because the um, the I believe it was so the olive. Oh gosh, I, I'm blanking here, but I think it was the olive oil that they were importing. They knew that it had been adulterated with cottonseed oil, and they know just from the taste. Because people that know the taste, like they they can see if they know good olive oil, they can taste these right. that have been adulterated. I mean, and chemically, it's extremely difficult to figure it out chemically. Um, it take it the testing is fantastically hard to 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 determine that. I guess it can be done, but it's really difficult. Oh. So you okay. know to take it right. to That's take it into, get a, away with uh, it into a lab. You know, and, and try to figure out if it's got other oils in it. It's not a, that's not an easy task. Well, you know, uh, in my world, uh, Chris, uh, what we would do with our, you know, uh, we we do a technique called divine muscle testing. So assuming we don't have any attachment to the outcome, we just kind of connect the source and we ask, you know, basically, is mm-hmm. it real or not real, or what percentage is it real, and get a percentage, and and that's how we would figure it out aside from taste, you know. Just uh, yeah. what's the light score of this particular product, and if it's low, and you know, figure out why it's low, and and what percentage is it real. So that's kind of an energetic way of testing for that, which can be very 
convenient if one knows that mm-hmm. particular skill set. Um, we do yeah. have a couple of questions here. Uh, would love okay. to um, connect them with you. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to, for the folks that are live on the show, I'm going to unmute you and uh, share your first uh, area code, not your full number, but your area code, and maybe introduce your first name, and then ask your question. So first person, area code 970. Hi, who's this? Hi there, this is Nan, and I'm running she's car because I'm late for work. So, um, oh, hey, Nan. I'm okay. yeah. hey, hey, this is a great program. I love this. I just ordered six bottles, three bottles of Mercola biodynamically grown olive oil. I hope it's all right, but it's nutrition, um, devoid of nutrition, but all right, so I just got some tea. But, uh, Dr. Chris, could you please say what the relationship of what you're talking about is to cataracts? To cataracts? Yes. Right. So I don't know if everybody can hear the question, but she's asking, what's the relationship of all this to cataracts? And um, I, I do not have an answer for that except to say that um, number one is, is people on ancestral diets all around the world develop cataracts. I mean, you cannot entirely stop cataracts no matter what your diet is. Uh, that, that, that's for sure. Um, but, but I will say this, we know that, um, smokers and diabetics, for example, get cataracts way sooner. Like, I mean, potentially decades sooner. Like the only people that I ever removed cataracts from that were in their thirties and forties, typically they were either smokers or diabetics or both. And, um, I saw, I've seen, um, two people, in 24 years of ophthalmology that were 90 or above that did not have cataracts and these were fantastically healthy people on no medicines and they were one of them was a guy that was 92 and he'd consumed an ancestral diet his whole life and he was in wow. he was, uh, from northern texas or oklahoma but he was incredibly healthy wow let's do oh. that yeah, well, yeah. Nan, that's a great question because it just reminded me that some people have had some success, although it's anecdotal, I, I didn't actually read the research on it, of using carnosine drops in the eye to right. reverse the... I tried them. Um, I didn't see change. Yeah. Mm. You didn't notice a change? Yeah, so... But maybe I didn't Dr. do it Chris enough, or maybe it wasn't real carnosine, maybe it was, I don't know, something else. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my understanding yeah, was so, the high spiking blood sugars can contribute to um, agglutination of the sugars in the the lens, and I don't know, you know, that makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah I don't, do I don't know. Sugar. Yeah, I don't know anything about that, but uh, you know, the first, you know, carnosine is obviously um, a strong antioxidant, right, Karen? And and yes. so, but it would have to get, it would have to pass through the cornea and get into the aqueous humor in order to have any effect on the lens. And then would have to go through the capsule of the lens to get into the, into the lens material itself. You know, the lens, the natural lens is made up of collagen and these fibrils are incredibly orderly. And when they become disorderly, when they start going different directions, that's what a cataract is really. So... Yeah, I can't imagine that it could ever reverse, you know, that anything could reverse a cataract, really. But 
some of these, I just think there's a lot of, there are definitely obviously a lot of ways that, that can help prevent cataracts, but I'm convinced that you can't entirely prevent cataracts, even with a perfect diet. I'm convinced that you can get over cataracts. And see, if you listen to uh, Karen's associate um, who got rid of cataracts early, not ripe, not mature, with lightweight patches, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Are you talking about now, Dr. Quila? Nan or yes. somebody else. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can't remember what she. Yeah, we have a we have a friend. She's an acupuncturist colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Chris, and uh, we're all um, we're really into these phototherapy patches. We've done stuff that you know traditionally haven't been able to be done before, and she's been using this protocol in her eyes and uh, um, reversing the. Uh, she's had vision damage since age 11, I think she said, or even earlier. She was on glasses for a really long time. So she's, yeah, she's been having to go to the ophthalmologist every two weeks to change her prescription because it, it keeps improving. Um, I have not had that personally yet, although my vision, I can tell it keeps fluctuating. <laughs> you know, as I'm using these various different patches, we have one that's a stem cell enhancing one. So, so one, you know, one day I'll be able to read close, another day I can't read close, another, you know, so it, it fluctuates. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm still, you know, waiting to see how that goes, but, but thank you, Nan, for your question so much. Sure. Thank you. All right. So I'm, I'm going to mute you and we'll go to our caller here. This might be the last one. Uh, Eric code 416. Hi, who's this? Hi, it's Joy. Hi, thanks. Karen. Hey, Joy. Um, yeah, Joy Gotts. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've just uh, been referred to an ophthalmologist. I haven't seen him yet, um, you know, and it looks like it. Um, they're saying it's probably wet macula, my, my optometrist. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, I've got many shades of gray, darker with my one eye than I have with the other. And, um, yeah, so I guess I'm 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 wondering... Um, um, I really hear about the oils, but I haven't been using good oils for a long time. So, um, yeah, you, I, I, my diet is pretty good. Um, what else can I do? And, you know, um, yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty scary, you know, to be losing, you know, to be losing the vision yeah. in that eye. And I have been doing some other things. And um, some, you know, um, homeopathy and different stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and I'm hoping that that's going to help. And I've been using uh, some glutathione and carnosine um, patches as well. So, but Joy, I guess did what, you, what is, yeah. Joy, did you say that you have been consuming good oils or no, have not? For the, most part, for the most part, I would say I have. Um, I don't. Uh, even olive oil, I'm never attracted to olive oil. You know, I haven't been for years, you know. Um, I usually mostly use a bit of avocado oil. Um, I eat butter. Um, you know, I tolerate, you know, a little bit of um, milk, lactose, and protein. So I don't, you know, I've used ghee in the past. Um, you know, I could certainly go buy more liver because I like liver. And mm-hmm. I could buy cod liver oil and try that. Um, so, yeah, so I'm just kind of like... Okay, how long have um, you been eating like this? I mean, have you been consuming good oils for two decades or or no? I, um, I would say no. I probably eliminated vegetable oils um, several years ago. 
and um, for the most part, you know, and I mean, um, but I, and I'm also gluten-free for the most part, you know, so I mean, mm-hmm. I have a sister who was a celiac, so um, that kind of, you know, grains are not particularly my, my friend, that's for sure, you know, I don't, um, even the alternative grains, I don't eat a lot of them, I eat a little bit every once in a while, mm-hmm. so yeah. Okay. So, so here's and came here's on, it what came I would on really, say. Really fast, you know. Um, yeah. So with, I would say within the last three years, I had sort of oh, let's keep an eye on this. To like you know, just a few months ago, it's like whoa, I've lost my vision, you know. Okay. So um, first thing is is you know number one is regarding oils is yeah we do all have to realize that. You know, we have to sort of pay for our nutritional sins, uh, and the vegetable oils is uh, what happens is, as I said, they do accumulate in our tissues, and incredibly, the half-life of these oils in our tissues is about 600 to 680 days. Let's just round it off to two years. Pharmacologically, wow. okay. you know, phar- pharmacists, yeah. you know, that, that, that work would tell us, Karen and I could tell you that it takes five half-lives to get a substance out of your body. So if you do the five half-lives, five half-lives 600 times 600, that's 3,000 days. That means that these oils are going to be higher in your tissues for many, you know, quite a few years. And that's okay. the sad part. Right. That's the tough part. Um, okay. And you know, honestly, I think my health is still improving eight years, nine years now after getting these oils out of my diet. But, okay, but that's, so that's one issue. Keep that in mind. You're going to have to do the right things, you know, and just stay the course. But number two, if you have wet macular degeneration, realize that wet macular degeneration is an urgency, not an emergency, but almost, um, you know, if, if you have leaking because there's wet macular degeneration, it means there's vessels growing up under your retina and they break through this layer called Brooks membrane and they can leak and bleed into the retina and cause disaster within days. And so right. what we do for, the, for that today, there's been a very effective treatment for this and it's the anti-VEGF. VEGF is vascular endothelial growth factor and we have these anti-VEGF drugs like Avastin and Lucentis, there's others. But anyway, we inject these drugs into the eye, and this is the one place where drugs plays a huge role in macular degeneration, the only place really for the most part. But inject these medicines, and it, it uh, blocks the vascular endothelial growth factor, and then that, that clump of vessels that's growing and leaking and bleeding, it regresses most all the time. I mean, the effectiveness is over 90%. And uh, so it's a stopgap measure. And it, you know, and then anyway, so I would say if there's any chance at all that you have wet macular degeneration, you've got to get to a a qualified ophthalmologist, which is almost always an MD or a retina specialist, you know, MD who can treat that. I have a referral for, to somebody in March, early, you know, March 3rd, but this was diagnosed in December 18th, and I couldn't, and he prioritizes, and I couldn't believe, you know, you're suspecting a wet macula, and you're making me wait. It's like, okay. Oh, if it's bad, um, you know, I would call, I would be calling around saying, you know, um, I have, supposedly, I have wet macular degeneration, and it's like, you know, I would think most... Yeah. If we knew that in my practice, we would have had somebody in usually within 24 hours. 
Okay. Uh, this is Canada, so, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, this is Canada, yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, uh, I know. Sorry, so I'm Canadian, it, it, so I can say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you it's can. a lot longer yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, it's... Well, um, um, I'm, I'm hoping, sorry to hear that, you know, Joy. I'm hoping the, yeah, I'm hoping the, um, you know, the the um, other stuff I've been doing um, has been, you know, sort of a, being a stopgap as well, you know, with the uh, the drops and the homeopathics and things like that, right? So, yeah, I just, are you I just using want to make it. 39 over your eye? I haven't been using it over my eye, but... I would put, like it, put, it, yeah, on my, put, put on, it on the mat on my, and, and, yeah, put it right over that eye. Okay. Yeah, I would just, right. you know, draw the analogy. Oh, I'm sorry. The, I would just draw the analogy that wet macular degeneration is, you know, the equivalent of having a stroke or a heart attack. It's like that's not the time to be, you yeah. know, trying to fix yeah. your diet or change your diet. That's not going to, you know, yeah. it's this is the time to be going yeah. to the emergency room, except, you know, you, an emergency room does no good for, macular degeneration you know you have to get to an ophthalmologist that treats this with injections um so like i'm I'm a general ophthalmologist and i did those but and a lot of general ophthalmologists do but you know you need to get to somebody that treats wet macular degeneration yeah macular degeneration with the injections yeah the retinal yeah you might be able to get into one of the university ones um quicker hopefully joy and and maybe we can all you know pray for you and just hold that there right so yeah. nothing happens while you're waiting yeah yeah and, and I, okay so i'll try to there. get 39 and and i i am taking a homeopathic for vascular stuff as well so um you know a tissue salt just yeah, to try and help strengthen the veins yeah the blood vessels and everything yeah okay well okay. thank you so much Great. and uh this thanks joy really interesting and thanks for the understanding. Thanks, Joy. And many, many yeah. years of recovery. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, okay. That, I think that's really helpful. Um, thanks for letting us know that half-life because I was, I was going to ask about that, like how long does it take to detox off Isn't that terrible? Know, vegetable oils. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's I'm a thinking. While. Maybe we can figure something frequency-wise we can do. <laughs> yeah, you I'm know, just now right at nine that. years from having stopped vegetable oils myself completely. And, um, and I wow. still, my health is still improving improving wow that's that's really interesting yeah. now i know some yeah. some ophthalmologists uh kind of nowadays not when i was in medical school it tells you how old i am but uh nowadays uh are actually prescribing eye vitamins uh so what do you think of that is that useful at all <laughs> yeah that's um... you're laughing but <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I should not, um, but uh, um, how much time do we have? Do you want me to just <laughs> well, give a couple of minutes? How much time do you have? Because, yes, yes, we actually, you know, made the show, you know, an extra 15 minutes just, you know, in case we go over. But if you have time, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Okay, so because I'm going to just try to do the a really shallow dive here. So, so here's the thing is that the ARIDs, the ARID study, the age-related eye disease study, began back in the 1990s. And what this was is they, they put um, macular degener- degeneration patients on this set of vitamins and minerals. It's basically vitamins E, C, beta carotene, zinc, and copper. And, um, and they, they, they treated them for five years. Now, the thing about macular degeneration, Karen, is is it's not like a heart attack or stroke. You know, there's all these 
various gradations of it. So you have to categorize it into, you know, stages essentially. So it's like it was categorized from stages one to uh, four. And so one is really early and four is very advanced. And so what they found after five years on the ARIDS formula, the, the vitamins, was that the people so it made no difference for people in stages one or two, which is the earliest stages of macular degeneration. There was zero benefit. And by the way, there's never been a study that has shown any benefit from supplements in terms of preventing macular degeneration, not one study. And so, okay, so back to the ARID study. So categories one and two, early macular degeneration, zero benefit. Now, if you were in categories three or four, and category three is where you have moderate macular degeneration in both eyes, or category four, which is where you had advanced macular degeneration in one eye. If you were in one of those categories, then if you took the ARIDS formula, 20% of those people advanced to more, uh, or went on to more advanced stages of macular degeneration within five years, 20%, okay? The people in the placebo group, that got the sugar pill, 28% of them progressed to more advanced stages. So it helped 8% of the people that were consuming the supplement, 8%. Now, people have to understand, 8% is one in 12 and a half, when you can't have a half a person, so it helped one in 13 people, right? Okay. One in, uh-huh. one in th- so that was your chances of if you take an ARIDS formula for five, every day for five years and you do nothing else with your diet, which because nobody else know, that nobody you know knows anything about diet, right? The, anyway, right. so five years later you have an eight percent chance that a one in thirteen chance that you'll be better. But then Carl O. Um, and his research group in Tennessee. Um, these are this is a retina group. They analyzed all of this and looked at genetics versus the ARIDS formula and the outcomes. And what they found in a nutshell is that around 30% of the people who took ARIDS formula across the board were worse. In fact, oh no, um, 13% of them had a more than doubling of progression of their macular degeneration because they took the supplement. And a total what? of around 30% are worse off. So in other words... So if you don't know your genetics, you don't know what you're doing, and, and you know, you just willy-nilly, you go, okay, my doctor says take the ARIDS formula, there is roughly a one in three chance that you will make your macular degeneration worse if we go by Carl O's research, and his research is pretty solid. Um, it's been well recognized, except, you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology essentially looked at all this in 2015 and they said, you know, it's not important enough that we're going to change our stance. And they, their stance is still that just everybody should take ARIDS formula. And that's how they've stood. Does that include the lutein and whatever? Well, so, okay, so that was, um, that was ARIDS 1 data. And then so ARIDS 2, the second part of it was then they added in omega-3 fatty acids and lutein's and zeaxanthin. Um, that was yeah. ARIDS-2. And when they looked at all the data from the ARIDS-2, 
the initial report that came out, they analyzed all the data and they said no benefit at all for omega-3 or lutein and zeaxanthin, did, didn't do anything. And that was what, the, what their first report was. And then, like, I don't know, a few months later, they, you know, somebody raised a flag or something. And they reanalyzed all the data, and they came out with a second report on ARIDS-2. And what they said was is that the omega-3 had zero benefit, and the um, lutein and zeaxanthin was slightly beneficial. So there was a slight benefit to the lutein and zeaxanthin, um, at, you know, the, which was combined with the ARIDS formula. So there's, it's really slight. Obviously, I mean, their first report was it didn't, didn't do anything. And then the second huh. report was that it's a slight benefit. So here's the thing, you know, is that I think if you go in and you, I mean, just for almost all people, if you go in and you buy the ARIDS formula and you just take it like your doctor says, you run a very substantial chance that you could make your macular degeneration worse um, and a very small chance, you know, roughly, I mean, statistically, 8%, that you will be better. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, <clears throat> eye-opening. <laughs> and the, the, the whole reason, Karen, is because this doesn't address the underlying problem at all. It right. has no right. no basis in 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 the cause of macular degeneration because the cause is the fundamentally wrong diet, a diet that is nutrient deficient and toxic. So it's nutrient deficient because 63% of the American diet as of 2009 is made up of refined white wheat flour, sugar, vegetable oils, and trans fats. And that makes it extremely nutrient deficient. It's deficient in all the vitamins that are so important to the macula, which is A, D, and K2. Um, and then you have all the toxicity driven by sugar and vegetable oils. And that is the fundamental cause. And the ARID study does, did not look at or ha essentially have anything to do with diet because there's no consideration that it's about diet. Now, and that's the paradox. If it's not about diet, then why give people vitamins in the first place? Exactly. But they're right. giving the wrong exactly. vitamins, too. I mean, EC, beta-carotene, zinc, and copper, that has almost nothing to do with this disease. We're not deficient, I don't think, in a severely way that we're deficient in vitamin E. Uh, now, we, I mean, we could be, but I mean, that's not our main problem. If, we, if we're looking for low-hanging fruit, it's vitamins A, D, and K2. I mean, the big, you know, fat-soluble vitamins, those are fundamental and critical, and that goes clear back to researchers knew this in 1918. E.V. McCollum, who Weston Price learned a lot from all the research that had been done in the, by the late 1920s. And when he left, Karen, for his research around the world in the early 1930s, he had learned a ton of this from all the research that had been that had been already been done, it went back to 19 ah. in the early 1900s, and so we established all this. And if if you and what I say is almost everything we needed to know about nutrition was already known by 1945. If we just looked at that data, they now they didn't understand the toxicity of all these oils and trans fats and all that because they, right. you know, they didn't know, know that part. But they knew exactly what it took to have a healthy diet, and that was known by the 1930s and 40s. Mm, wow, that's that's uh, pretty crazy stuff. Um, yeah. Now you mentioned myopia before, 
so nearsightedness, mm-hmm. and um, that's, you know, a lot of Chinese people wear glasses for that. Very few have I seen are farsighted. Uh, now, why mm-hmm. in, in a particular population, in the Asian population, you know, that my mom would say, oh, it's because you read too much or whatever. Like, is there a genetic reason for that, or is it just like a societal, cultural reason for that, that, you know, so many Chinese and, uh, and Asian people have to wear glasses? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So, here, you know, if you look at this, it, no, it's the exact same story that, you know, in the last 60 years, Asia, half of the world's population has westernized their diet. And the biggest part of that is, is vegetable oils. That's what they've done. They, they've started, you know, supplanting their traditional fats with our vegetable oils. And what, you know, so if you look back, you know, like before 1950, I don't know that there's uh, published data on this, but almost anybody knows just just common knowledge that Asians didn't need glasses hardly at all. And now in some of the populations like in Hong Kong, it's around 80 to 90 percent. It's close to 90 percent of the the youngsters, the youth and the those in their 20s are myopic. They're needing glasses. And it is and this this was known, in fact, um, um, Lauren Cordain and his group way back in, I think, the 90s already had connected um, ancestral diets to, to uh, you know, very good, uh, you know, vision, emetropia, meaning no need for glasses, and uh, fundamentally deficient diets in producing myopia. This was this was, you know, this was published mm. by their group, and I think that was in the 90s. And um, so, but if if you just look, you just track what happened to Japan, to China, to Korea, um, all of those nations, they all have westernized their diets in the last 50, 60 years. They're all eating more and more and more like Americans. And here's the thing is they are fantastically more prone to myopia as a result of a bad diet than we are. You know, just like I'm prone to, you know, with, a, you know, I'm prone to arthritis. You know, you're prone to something else. Some people are prone to cancer, right? And we all have a genetic predisposition that, you know, when we – if we have a westernized diet, we're at more risk for something. And the Asians are very, very high risk for myopia. That's one of the mm. things that they're very high risk for. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was very interesting that uh, way back when, and my eye, you know, anatomy is not all that hot, but um, <laughs> that, that the myopic people have longer eyeballs. And I was like, how does that work? Is the vitreous humor getting scarred down? Is that why it's large, like longer, and and the and the the focal point isn't at the proper you know part of the retina? Like like I couldn't understand why you would get shorter or longer eyeballs from nutrition issues. Yeah, you know, I mean, the 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 it is kind of um, paradoxical because, as you know, even from Weston Price's research, we know that. That with a deficiency of fat soluble vitamins, the middle of the face narrow, you know narrows right the maxilla um, uh, that bone 
um, those bones of the middle of the face, they all narrow and, and, you know, all sorts of things go wrong. People get low set ears and, and problems with their orbital, uh, um, arrangement and so forth as a result of, of, uh, deficient diets. And just one of the things that happens is, is, um, the, the axial length of the eye increases for whatever reason. I don't know why that is, but it's, but to me, it is so glaringly obvious. Um, all of the evidence shows this. And if you look back at, um, like all of these, uh, all, all of these, you know, people consuming ancestral diets, even to today, if you look at Maasai warriors, none of them need correction. And that was known in the 1930s, you know, that right. none of these people ever needed correction um, because their diets were so nutritionally sound. They're so nu- nutritionally replete. And, you know, they didn't have any of these toxic foods. I mean, there's something like around today, there's a, in, the, in the scientific literature, there's around 50 populations that have been studied at, the, at you know, uh, that are hunter gatherer type populations over the, even over even since prices time even in the last sixty years, and every single one of them the the things that they share in common is they don't have vegetable oils or trans fats and they don't have refined wheat flour um, they can get and some of them have some significant sugar consumption like but it's through honey like the hadza. Um, uh-huh. And honey can be a, is a nutritionally good food if it's you know when if it's raw unfiltered. Um, and it's not but, all you eat. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Oh yeah, and they would. Oh my just gosh, well, Dr. You know, Christie, you know, we 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 don't have too much time left, but I just want to yeah. share with everyone to check out your website at www.cureamd.org. So. All one word, cure, A-M-D, as an apple, Mary, David, dot O-R-G. Check out uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Chris's book. Uh, I think I might buy a copy of that for my ophthalmologist as <laughs> a gift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think he'd be open to it coming from me anyway. Um, so thank you so much, Chris, for your time. This was wonderful uh, speaking with you. Thanks for answering the questions as well. And uh, I had a lot of fun. So thank you, thank you. Me too, Karen. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure, really, truly. Thank you. I hope I can be on your show awesome. again sometime. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Take care, Karen. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening in. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.